0: Scripture reading this morning is Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. I had like a thousand different directions to go uh, this week um, as we begin a new sermon series called Habits of the Heart uh, as what we are calling worship. Um, That's what we're... Uh, trying to do. and this morning we are kind of exploring, well, through over the next the course of the next six weeks or so, we're exploring the different aspects of our worship. So this morning we're going to start with call to worship. and as you as you've now experienced, we do different things uh, throughout the service. and we believe that these are different aspects of worship than that we can take out into our lives as well and through into our daily lives. And so um, this morning we are going to, kind of talk about worship, because this is that intro sermon that we do to the sermon series and setting some things up, but then we're also going to talk about what it means to be called to worship and why that is important as well. The question is, what is worship? Like, we know this word. We probably use it at least on a semi-regular basis, but how would we define it? What, What does that mean when you hear the word worship? Do it. That's where you're at. Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. So what? Absolutely, yep. He took like half my sermon away from me. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's what we pay attention to. It's where our focus is. Uh, it's where our affections go. It's giving glory. Glory is the word weight. So we give weight to something, and it has pull and dimension. And it has a gravitational force in our life. Uh, Dictionary.com defines it as reverent honor and homage paid to God or a sacred personage. I think that's almost too narrow because we give weight, we give honor to a lot of things in our life. Worship is paying attention to something that's near to our hearts and that can even be ourselves, and quite often it is ourselves. The whole world is kind of focused on making us believe that we are the most important person in this, but they only do that so that we buy their products, we pay more attention to them, we follow them on this or that platform, etc. It could be a celebrity. It could be an Insta-famous person. But as we begin to look at, like, even if, we, if you began to dissect my Instagram feed, it would be like, cool cars. It would be, um, raw denim. It would be too many watches that I can't afford. Um, it would be all these things that really tell me I'm not enough at this point in my life, that I don't have the things that I want. And really to be satisfied in this life, I need to get a Porsche. I need to get an old Land Rover. I need to have a uh, amazing watch Um, uh, hopefully vintage as well Um, I need to have cool jeans all these things I I do very much appreciate craftsmanship, thank you Sarah I I feel very affirmed and seen in this Uh, David Foster Wallace says everyone worships the only choices we get is what to worship, so we're all worshiping something, we're all orienting our lives around something or someone and it's in the end, that's how we shape our lives. We shape our lives around the things that are important to us. NT Wright says, "You become like what you want to worship, or what you you become like what you worship." When you gaze in awe, admiration, and wonder at something or someone, you begin to take on something of the character of that object of worship. I think worship in the church can often be uh, mere entertainment. Um, It can be incredibly passive, um, but how we want to structure our worship here at the table is something that's both active and engaged. It's active and engaged because we want your hearts, we want your emotions, your habits to be engaged, to be shaped and transformed into the life of Jesus. Uh, One of the words that we use for this is liturgy liturgy literally means the work of the people. We don't come here to sit and just be, uh, just have worship, you know, music sung to us, um, and to hear announcements and to receive a sermon, to be entertained, to laugh, though. I do always appreciate when people laugh, even the little chuckle I just got, um, But we are here to be shaped by our practices, and we believe that this liturgy, this worship, uh, this form of worship, can be used to take us out into the rest of the world to shape how we live outside of Sunday morning as well. So we have a call to worship, Uh, we have confession and absolution, we have prayer, we have music. We have scripture and a sermon, and then we have the sacraments, which are baptism and communion. And we do these every week so that our hearts are shaped into habits, into this habitual understanding of who we are, and then we can go out and take these practices with us into the rest of the world. Now this liturgy and worship may feel foreign to you. It might not be something that you've uh, grown up with. It might feel super old school. It might feel incredibly archaic. And in some ways it is. Uh, the Common Book of Prayer, uh, which was a uh, is a worship guide book, was written in like the 15, 15, 16, what? 1585, so late late 16th century, it's been around for a while. These practices have also been around. That was kind of when it was organized, but they've been throughout the church for de- for decades, for millennia uh, before as well. It could feel uncomfortable. It could feel incredibly too structured as well, and in some ways it is because it's not fitting into our life. It's us fitting into the life of god it's us being formed by the habits that he wants to form in us we might be uncomfortable with this but we are formed by cultural liturgies every day if not on a very regular basis they shape us and they form us um, and we're often blind to how they work think about a football game if you're going to go to one you purchase tickets months in advance maybe if you want a good good price on them Maybe you tailgate, you go early, you buy the swag, you have a t-shirt or a hoodie or a jersey if you're a big spender, and you put that on and you wear that. Maybe you get it for your whole family as well. You spend money uh, when you go to the stadium and parking, just getting in there. Uh, you uh, uh, go to the concessions. You get caught up in what's going on. You learn the chants and the cheers, and throughout this, the game, You yell and you sing and you moan and you glory in every step that the players take on the field. Your emotions rise and fall with every play, successful or not. And at the end of the game, depending on how much money you've, quote-unquote, invested in going and how much time you've spent, whether it's a, 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 a home game or if you've traveled to see the team as well, you are either incredibly elated for the win that you got or incredibly depressed in the loss that you've received because we have been shaped and formed into what is going on at the game and our emotions and our hearts and our identity is shaped and formed in that as well. We count ourselves more than spectators when we go to these games because the liturgy of, and the rites and the rituals that we partake in when we go to the game. And there are thousands of other ways that we are shaped by culture every day um, throughout our lives. Our liturgy here begins with a call to worship. A call to worship is an invitation to worship Jesus. It's an invitation to let our hearts be oriented to Him. The question is, why would we choose to have our hearts shaped like Jesus? I think this passage answers that for us. It's because Jesus' heart is shaped towards us. We might know what Jesus has done for us, how he died on the cross for us for the forgiveness of our sins, was raised from the dead, conquering the grave so that we might have life in him, that he is now seated on uh, on the throne at the right hand of God, interceding for us on a regular basis, ensuring that we receive his grace and mercy and love. But this passage tells us who Jesus is towards us. More than what he has done, we learn who he is. Jesus says, this is my heart. This is what motivates me. This is what gets me up in the morning. I'm going to read, uh, we, the first reading was from the message, Eugene Peterson's translation of it, um, and I will come back to that. I want to read it out of a, a more literal translation as well. Um, it says, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's the picture of his heart there. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. would think of someone who is called God to be austere, demanding, maybe exalted and dignified, maybe joyful and generous, but we wouldn't think gentle and lowly. That's how Jesus describes his heart. He says he's gentle. It's the same word uh, that we have in the Beatitudes when he said, blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble. He's not harsh, a reactionary. He's not easily exasperated. He's lowly, which overlaps with gentleness. It's humble, not as a virtue, but as a state of being. He has a downward trajectory in his life. He's not socially impressive. In short, he's accessible. God, yes, God is uh, holy. Jesus is holy. He is God incarnate. He is resplendent in his glory. But he's also approachable. He's tender. He's open. He's welcoming. He's accommodating. He's understanding and he's willing. Much the opposite of who I am most of the time in my life, but definitely in my parentage as well. Um, you guys were here, so We took Evelyn away and we spoke to her gently and calmly and we were patient with her. But I will tell you, last night, that was not the case. Um, They have been at each other all weekend and we get tired. Stacy is incredibly tired. Joshua has been up lately. And when we get tired as parents, we uh, tend to default into that which is easy to get our kids to behave, to get their attention, to get them to conform with what we want. We yell... We threaten. We take things away. We discipline. Whether we go through them or not, we are certainly not gentle and kind and loving and patient all the time. We tend to yell. I tend to get harsh. I make threats. I get mean. I get loud. Sometimes I even say, like, hey, this is the only way I can get your attention. And then they have my attention, and then they look very um, sad, and my heart kind of breaks a little bit. And then I get Puff back up a little bit like, well, you did this to yourself. This is not Jesus' way. He gets down on his knees. He remains gentle and lowly. He opens his arms. He speaks kindly and patiently and lovingly to all those who come to him. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. As Peterson translates it, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? come to me get away with me and you'll recover your life jesus is not here for all those who have it together he's not here for those who just want to live a life of leisure he's not here for those who can uh, who we would consider successful in their lives those who are healthy those who have it all together he's here for those in need those who feel overwhelmed by the flood waters of life whether literal or metaphorical. Those who are tired, those who are grinding it out, those who never get a break, who are hustling, who are dry and parched. Uh, Martin Luther says, those who are fatigued and overwhelmed. John Calvin says, it's our failure that makes us fit to receive his grace. This is who Jesus welcomes to him. You don't have to have it together to come to him. And in this, Jesus affirms that our life is hard. Our life is laborious. Here we see two different types of rest that he's giving to, to us. He says, Are you burdened? Are you heavy laden? Do you have do you labor? I will give you rest. He sees our physical work. He sees what we go through, the the toil that we have in this life, in our work, in our studies, and just the physicalness of our being. We are exhausted. Our, Moms, especially in this world, are exhausted. They never get uh, a moment off. They're up all night with kids, and then they have to uh, uh, try (laughs) uh, to be loving and gentle and kind to them during the day as well. It's not just our physical work. It's our souls as well. Jesus says, I will give you rest for your souls this is the word psyche, it's where we tend to think of our mind, but it, in, the, in the Greek it would have meant our heart, the center of our being, the deepest part of ourselves that's often churning, looking for uh, meaning, looking for um, identity in this place, in this world, wondering if we're doing it right, wondering if anything matters. Jesus sees us and he says, I will give you rest says, take my yoke, learn from me, I will give you rest. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace, I will give you rest for your souls. Jesus says, take my yoke, and promises rest. This is a seeming juxtaposition. A yoke is a... Um, is something that uh, you know would be put over our shoulders. Uh, that uh, it's a tool of work. Two oxen in a field would be joined together to plow to do this heavy uh, labor with one another. Often it would be an older one who knew the work but tires easily, but and a young one who had all the strength but would needed to be harnessed and be guided in that work as well. They balance each other out and they fill in for one another's weakness. Jesus says, "I know you." have a yoke. I know you are burdened in this life. Why don't you try mine? Why don't you try my yoke? It is easy. My burden is light. The religious teachers of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, their teachings would often be called yokes. Jesus often uh, um, condemned them in their teachings as well. You're kind of you're putting fences around fences around fences, he would say. Scribes and, tend- and Pharisees tended to be perfectionists. They had exacting demands. You will do this, or you will not be uh, my disciple anymore. They had to uphold standards. They had rote memorization. You had to be perfection but jesus says my yoke is easy my burden is light even in the word burden that he uses here in the passage it's a diminutive it's like a a little a little burden It actually like like a helium balloon kind of lifts us up into who he has created us to be jesus is patient he's kind he's gentle it's not perfection he's after it's you he is after Jesus says, I will walk with you. We will share this yoke together, and I will accompany you in this life. And in so he promises rest. He says there's no strivings. There's no deadline. There's nothing to attend to, nothing to carry. This is rest. This is something we're going to do together the rest of our lives. We are together, the unforced rhythms of grace. We don't really know how to rest well. We often fill our time with more doings. We veg out in front of the TV. We binge watch Netflix. We think we are resting, but we go on vacations and loading up a trailer or our car full of things. We take it all with us. We unload it at a campsite or a hotel or whatever. We do all this work. We go and do all these things. We schedule our time just as completely as we would here and then we come back after loading it all back up in the car, we unload it here, and then we are just tired, and we need another day or two to rest before we can go back to our regular lives. We don't know how to rest well. The very next passage in Matthew, Jesus is accused of not resting well, as he and his disciples pluck pluck grain from a field as they walk alongside it. Uh, they accused, uh, the scribes and Pharisees accused him of violating the Sabbath. Honoring and keeping the Sabbath holy is one of the Ten Commandments, and one that uh, the Jews in the New Testament in the early uh, first century took very, very seriously. And they set up all types of rules and regulations for it. And it was a day reserved for worship. Even now, many Orthodox Jews have very strict and specific ways they go about their Sabbath day. They don't cook. They can only walk so far. They can't drive. They can't do anything that's considered work. Christians often set up these rules and regulations around uh, our Sabbath day as well. You can't recreate. You can't go do anything fun. You can't play. You just have to be. You have to be in worship all day long. I think that's part of a, the challenge of how we define worship and how we have defined worship in a church. But what we see here is that Jesus violates the Sabbath over and over and over again in their minds. He heals on the Sabbath, he picks grain, and he walks way too far and too often. But for Jesus, honoring the Sabbath gives us rest. That's the intent of it. It reminds us that he is in charge, that God is taking care of all things. We can rest from our work, our labor in the Sabbath, because in doing so, we are affirming that God is taking care of it, that he is watching over us, that we are finite, that we are limited in our being, and that God is not. He is infinite. He is unending in his caring towards us. It reminds us that our identity is not based on our production, but being yoked with Jesus, finding our rest in him being in relationship with him so it gives us space to play because in our play we're in i should say in worship we come to Jesus and we give our concerns to him we pray and say god please take care of this thing and then when we go to play we then leave those things at god with you know with god for him to take care of so that we can then have our minds on things that are that give us Life, truly, that give us rest. Because in our play, just as in our worship, we are affirming that God is in control and we are leaving our burdens before him, believing that he is tending to them. Peterson said, Worship is a strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God. Worship doesn't satisfy our hunger for God. It wets our appetite. So we keep coming back over and over and over again to affirm what the psalmist says, to taste and see that the Lord is good. When we are called to worship, we are invited to let our hearts find their rest in Jesus' heart for us. And this heating, this invitation, and finding rest, we are then free to invite others into this worship as well. In the habits of the heart, the unforced rhythms of grace aren't just confined to A Sunday morning. They are meant to shape our whole lives. They're to give us practices that we can take outside of this place with us. Jesus invites us into this rest so that we can invite others into his rest as well. We get to participate with Jesus in calling others to let Jesus unburden themselves with the demands of this world and to take on the yoke that he gives us, the rest that he offers to us. Are you tired? Father God, we are we're grateful um, that you don't demand things from us, that you give us rest, that you give us peace, uh, that you give us yourself so that we can go about this life knowing that we are not alone, knowing that our identity and worth is not based on what we do, how much we produce, how we spend our time, but that it is based on you. Lord, give us rest. Give us the peace that only you can give us. And we pray that um, we would be able to see what you are doing. Lord, open our eyes, eyes to those around us who you long to uh, invite into this rest as well. Give us courage um, and give us grace. Uh, give us courage to invite them and give us grace when, um, when we don't. Um, know. Help us to know that you still love us, and that you still invite us into your rest, into your heart. We pray these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.